Supply chain interruptions and slowdowns linger as an effect of the pandemic. They make purchasing and acquisition difficult for the private sector and government alike. Recently, thinkers from the IBM Center for the Business of Government, National Academy of Public Administration, and the Chamber of Commerce put their heads together to come up with ways governments can become more resilient on the supply chain front. Joining me with the details from the IBM Center, Dan Chenock. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And from North Carolina State, Robert Hanfield. Dr. Hanfield, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. And let's begin with what your sense is of what I said at the beginning. Is this still lingering with us? I can tell you from personal experience, there are definitely still consumer-rated supply chain interruptions. What about the industrial level and the governmental level? Let me start and then Rob can add. The premise of the discussion was really that the lingering effects of supply chain constraints you know, remain to some extent, but there are on the horizon new and evolving threats to the supply chain. And those both include threats from things like another, you know, healthcare crisis, but also threats to how the chains operate from evolving technologies and that can make things go faster, but can also introduce risks from cybersecurity, et cetera. So to your question, generally, the premise that the participants discussed and that Rob as our expert author wrote about were kind of broad spectrum and do apply across years. It wasn't just an effect of the pandemic, but Robert, go ahead and take over. Yeah, I would say uh, the effect of the pandemic has a very, very long lasting hangover. Unfortunately, we are still seeing traces of many of the disruptions that occurred during COVID that have continued to occur. And those are in the healthcare sector, even in the industrial goods sector, we're seeing shortages of different kinds of resins and steel and lumber in some cases. And you get these spot shortages. And and unfortunately, you don't really know where they're going to come from or or how they'll materialize. And there's, of course, a lot of other factors as well, climate change events, geopolitical events, etc. And people are kind of left in a state of continuous anxiety. You know, we were talking about purchasing People who buy things are almost always worried about something going wrong. And that seems to be kind of the state we're in these days. Yeah, I think in some ways, I mean, the first supply chain disruption that the modern day American industry felt was after the Arab oil embargo back in whenever that was in the middle 1970s. And so that's when I think we learned this thing could happen. But in the discussions that you all convened, uh, you came up with the concept of creating a shared and getting to government now here, creating a shared service approach to build supply chain resiliency. Shared service you hear in other contexts in the government arena. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. So the concept is that there are many players in many different supply chains, healthcare, food production, delivery of materials for building, uh, et cetera. The technologies and approaches and analytics approaches can be common across different kinds of supply chains. So the the concept we had is rather than set up lots of different um, centers of excellence to do design, development, technology process, that there were pockets of excellence that could be captured in a center that would be operated, let's say, by a center of government agency like GSA, but we didn't recommend that specifically to provide to the agencies the ability to, you know, have these kinds of technology capabilities and process capabilities in place so they didn't have to reinvent it on their own. Yeah, because basically right now every department and every independent agency to some degree does its own procurement, and there's often not a lot of collaboration. 
I would say, uh, you know, people like to say, well, the government is the biggest buyer in the world. It is, except that it's not really leveraging the collaborative strength of all these different agencies that are essentially siloed and, and doing everything independently. And the idea of a shared service would be one that does really three things. The first is providing access to data on what are some of the potential risks of disruption out there. And you can't manage what you can't see. So we need some kind of monitoring service to be able to provide warning of, hey, there's something bad going on in Chile or in South America that could impact our supply chains. We also need to have market intelligence. You know, I wrote a book in 2006 called Supply Market Intelligence, and I've studied the intelligence services, and it's exactly the same processes. We need to be able to do what-if analysis, do wargaming, and understand how we can mitigate these potential threats. And then we need that expertise. We need people who know what to do with this information. One of the insights was that people working in places like the National Stockpile, they did not have an acquisition background. They didn't even know how to source stuff. So we need to have the right people with the right skills in this kind of a shared service environment. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Hanfield. He's a professor in the Poole College of Management at North Carolina State University and with Dan Chenock, the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. And then your step two I really liked was diagnose the acquisition ecosystem. And by that, you didn't mean necessarily the federal acquisition system. There's a million people diagnosing that. There's about five commissions at work right now on different parts of it. You meant something else entirely, correct, Dan? Yes. So the idea is that there are risks at multiple stages of the ecosystem, and that's well before a formal procurement is done. And, and it's after a procurement is awarded in terms of execution and delivery of equipment. And regardless of the delivery mechanism, whether it's a shared service or some other type of governance approach, having the ability to kind of look end to end at opportunities and risks and basically link with suppliers, many of whom are not in the government, some of whom have formal contract relationships and some of whom don't, and some of whom are buyers or users of the government service once it's uh, acquired and delivered. So sort of taking that end-to-end -end approach is something that we found was critically important to identify the risks at each stage, because if one thing goes wrong, especially upstream, it has a lot of implications for the downstream delivery at the supply chain. Yeah, and this is not just in the military domain, although that comes to mind initially because what they buy is so complex and non-commercial versus what, for the most part, the rest of the government buys are the same commodities that everybody else buys. And the other thing I'll say, Tom, which is really important is, you know, the government does a lot of acquisition and the Department of Defense does a lot as well, but they rely on their vendor primes. And they're assuming that these primes and these what they call tier one suppliers do have visibility and are monitoring what's happening upstream. Well, that's a huge assumption that is usually incorrect. Usually they have no idea, you know, where their stuff is coming from beyond, you know, their immediate suppliers. And very often what we found is that these disruptions occur way upstream in what we call a tier three or tier four or even a tier five supplier. And it may be uh, raw material. It may be a supplier going out of business. It may be a, uh, like during COVID, we saw the uh, zero COVID disruptions that were shutting down manufacturing sites in China. So there's any number of different events that can cause these disruptions. And usually we don't know about it until it's too late, till stuff, you know, stops showing up at our loading dock. 
And we're like, uh-oh, what happened? <laughs> well, it's too late. We need to be more proactive about that. Yeah, it used to be the automobile industry at one time up until, I don't know, maybe the 80s were masters at supply chain. And they even got into the books of their suppliers and their suppliers' plans in such a deep way that it made the government look like pikers, you know, when doing accounting rules. That's not the case anymore. It doesn't seem to be with what you look at the performance of that industry. Well, you know, the automotive industry in particular, I, and I interviewed the head of General Motors uh, Supply Chain Resilience Group, and they are making big investments in supply chain resiliency. And one of the things they're doing is they are mapping out these multi-tier supply chains. Uh, they're figuring out who is their tier two supplier for this component? Who is their tier three? And I asked him, well, how are you getting this information? Are you using, you know, AI or technology? He goes, no, we simply ask them. Right. <laughs> you know? How about that? How about that? Right. And and so we have to be able to leverage and, and, and collaborate with our suppliers. And I don't think technology solutions are going to give us the right answers here. Yeah. Ask the white paint supplier, where do you get your titanium dioxide? And so we'll know you're going to be able to make us white paint. And one other thing I wanted to ask about, because there's a lot of good points in your report here, but the idea of design thinking to develop key supply chain components design thinking. Tell us more about that one. So that's a process of bringing together different stakeholders. Oftentimes when you think about sort of supply chain communication, you're talking about each tier, what sort of bilaterally, if you will. So the idea is let's bring together all the different players in a particular supply chain or many of them to kind of map out the process, see where the bottlenecks might be occurring, identify ways that they can sort of do the change management work to make the process smoother and do that before, as Rob said, you sort of turn to the technology solution. The design thinking can then help with designing the requirements for the technology, but this is a discipline that hasn't really been used a lot in this part of the government and could be very helpful. All right. And briefly, you had these discussions of these great thinkers from the different organizations. You met in two cities to have these discussions. Where are you sending this report around? Who should read this? So there's a lot of interest in the report already. We have uh, interest from Capitol Hill. From uh, There's been a, a recent piece of legislation introduced on supply chain efficiency for uh, a future crisis. And so we're in discussions there. We've been, we're in discussions with GSA uh, around around this and, and a lot of the agencies who participated in, in the report. And you can see the names of the agency participants in the, in the appendix um, have been interested in following up. And I know Rob's been talking to folks in, in his uh, neck of the woods as well. Yeah, I've, I've talked to um, a couple of different senators' offices, and you know they've got real interest, especially when it comes to you know drug supply. And there's continues to be you know shortages of common generic drugs, even you know uh, Adderall and uh, in some cases statins. And uh, there's greater concern about hey, where's this stuff coming from? And uh, turns out most of the you know active pharmaceutical ingredients are coming from China or India. And so there's there's movement on Capitol Hill to start building domestic capabilities in some of these high-impact areas that impact our health. Mr. Modi, open up this supply chain. Robert Hanfield is a professor in the Poole College of Management at North Carolina State University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Dan Chanock is the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Dan, always good to have you on. Great to see you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.